0: It's back to the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise with Wes Craven's new nightmare with special guest Cynthia Pollio on this episode of Scary Stuff. Welcome to a new episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, joined by co-host Nick Leamy. Hey everybody, how you doing tonight? And Jacob Jones Goldstein.
1: The world is an awful place, but at least we have this podcast. I thought it was a vampire. Oh wait, never mind, it's the 90s talking to me. <laughs> so what's the sports calamity du jour, Jake? Well, since you asked. So we're recording this uh, right after the Union have lost 4-0 in their worst game of the season. lost probably their second best player to a red card. So we won't appear in the final and very well may lose the East after what is the best season in team history. Uh. And it's one of those things. Like we have this horror podcast and it's great. People occasionally ask me, you know, how do you watch horror movies all the time? And I'm like, man, I'm a Philadelphia area sports fan. You think these horror <laughs> movies are bad? <laughs> like, I, you know, periodically I'm watching this soccer team and I'm like, you know, I should get a less emotionally devastating hobby. Like, it's just pure misery all the time. And, but it's so voluntary. Like, I don't have to be a sports fan. You know, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, it's all miserable. What are you going to do? At least basketball season starts so we can get to the main line in that misery. <laughs> That said, I am excited to talk about this movie, and our guest tonight is absolutely fabulous, so. I'm very excited. Uh, I'm hoping that will will snap me out of wanting to, you know, run headfirst into a brick wall.
0: Yeah, appropriately that you're bringing up real life suffering, since we're getting into the metatextual uh, horror with this, because we're doing Wes Graven's New Nightmare.
1: Yay! Yes,
0: we're finally back to the Elm Street franchise. Sorry it took a little bit. I'll mention up front, there's going to be a couple movies before we get to the remake, but we're getting to it. We're, we're getting to it. You know, I, I, I feel like the fact that,
1: <laughs> that you could make this movie a little differently because, you know, Freddie would, you know, come in and somebody would be having a sports stream and be like, ah, oh, fuck this. This is too much for me. And then go to somebody else. And say, I'm out. <laughs> like this person knows true suffering, as you said. You don't look so good.
2: How about I come back?
1: (laughs) are you watching? Soccer? Shit, no.
2: (laughs) I'll get you next night. (laughs) Slicing you up would be a blessing, and we don't do that here. Suddenly reminded the ending of Seven Psychopaths.
0: (laughs) I was just thinking of Seven Psychopaths the other day. Martin McDonough has a new movie that just premiered at uh, Fantastic Fest.
1: I've never seen that, but I get it mixed up with Bag Full of Heads. It's it's so good. It's better than Bag Full of Heads. You should see it. I haven't seen either of them, to be honest. It's just the names and something about the trailers, if I remember, kind of crossed wires in my brain. I believe
2: the actual title you're looking for is Seven Heads in a Duffel Bag. Sure. Eight. <laughs> oh, is it Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag? I'm sorry. Eight
1: Heads in a Duffel Bag. <laughs> Get it right! I thought that was Hateful Eight. No, that's Eight Man Out. I could do this all night. I
0: was about to say, are you talking about Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, or are you talking about Refrigerator Full of Heads? <laughs> which was the joe hill dc comic which i you know jake read
1: so. yeah definitely not refrigerator full of heads because that I oh, i'm read. sorry it
0: was basket full of heads refrigerator was the man we're getting everything mixed up refrigerator
1: the was game. the sequel wasn't it refrigerator
0: was <laughs> the sequel basket <laughs>
1: full of heads
2: was the first one yeah. i love this fucking job
0: <laughs> so wait we're back to eight men out what's going on that's a sports movie that's you know <laughs> Well, now I'm going to refer to this movie as Nightmare on Elm Street 7, The Ascension, which it was almost called, but no, in (laughs) fact, it is called Wes Craven's New Nightmare. And as Jake mentioned, we have a fabulous guest with us tonight. So we're going to get into that discussion here shortly. Just mentioned a couple things at the top. One, as always, full spoiler podcast. This movie's on HBO Max as of the time of this recording. If you're listening to this, I'm sure you've seen it already. But if you want to refresh on it, Go ahead, check it out on HBO Max.
1: Except Randy. Randy almost certainly hasn't seen it, and he's listening. But he ain't going to watch it either, so it doesn't matter.
0: Give this one a shot, Randy. It's fun. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention just real quick before we get into the main review is earlier this year, we did a review of After Midnight with Michelle Swope, and we had a fabulous time talking to Michelle about that movie. It's a movie we all love. And in the process, Michelle mentioned that she had an article coming up in an issue of Scream Magazine about Wes Craven. So at the time of the recording, that article was a couple months away, but now it's out. Nice. I'd read it when I got it, but I reread it as part of the prep for this episode. So Michelle sat down and she did interviews with Heather Langenkamp, Amanda Wiss, and David Arquette, just talking about their experiences meeting Wes, going through the casting process and you know, Wes's legacy. And so it's a really terrific article, especially if you're interested in hearing, you know, anecdotes and recollections of Wes Craven. So I really, really dug it. The website that it's at is screamhorrormag.com. So S C R E A M H O R R O R M A G dot com. And Michelle's wonderful, has amazing taste. So definitely check it out. Yeah, Michelle's fabulous. When you go there, there's a store link and it is issue number, I don't know where Got to be eight, right? Shit. 73, 73. There it is. Upper right hand corner. So issue number 73, because when you go there, they have all the different issue numbers. So you have to pick the one you want. And then there's a drop down box. So absolutely go check that out. And yeah, Michelle's great. So there's some extra West Craven content for you before we get started. So with that said, let's bring on our guest. This is a movie I've been very much looking forward to discussing, and I'm so delighted by the guest we have with us today. Her poems and short stories have appeared. In many publications and anthologies, a stack of which I've got next to me, including were including Tales, a shapeshifter anthology, a favorite of mine. The chapbook *Snow White Shattered Coffin* from *It Came Beyond Pulp*. The *Haldark Holidays* anthology, edited by previous podcast Gabino Iglesias. Her novel *Children of Chicago* is currently available from Agora Books. Her true crime poetry collection *Into the Forest and All the Way Through* is available from Burial Day Books. And she has another poetry collection coming out on October 13th, which is Crime Scene via Raw Dog Screaming Press. And we're just delighted to have her on. She's a longtime fan of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, so please join me in welcoming Cynthia Palio Yay! Hi,
3: everyone. Oh, What a warm welcome. Thank you for having me. This is this is going to be fun.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's. We mentioned before we got started that you had tweeted at one point how much you were a fan of the Freddy Krueger character. So I was. So excited that we could get you on to talk about this particular movie of all the ones in the franchise of New Nightmare, the one that very specifically deals with kind of the Freddy Krueger as icon concept. So I thought well, that would be particularly fun.
3: Definitely. No, I mean, the Freddy Krueger is why I'm a horror writer. Nice. Freddy Krueger is why I'm why I'm here. Like it was the very first horror movie, A Nightmare on Elm Street, I think. You know, it came out in 84, I feel like it was like 85, 86 when it was on VHS and my brother rented it and my parents stepped out of the house and he was babysitting five-year-old me like in 85 and it was, I walked in from the kitchen right in that alley scene where Ah. Freddie has his arms extended and my like world was rocked like from then that's it <laughs> that visual was like what defined my trajectory in life just seeing that dark alley and those arms extended and that's and ever since then i've just been like captivated by him and uh har so that's why thanks to my brother robert <laughs> my brother's robert and thanks to robert oh, england because that's <laughs> why I'm here yeah that's amazing yeah and it's uh I even have a sign, Robert England. I uh, I even have a signed poster from him. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm just obsessed with this character and just the concept of, uh, and I'm sure we'll delve more into it, but just like, you know, we all sleep. And it's one of these things where, you know, we can all kind of like identify with something of this story. We all sleep. Many of us dream. Many of us remember our dreams. And there's nothing more vulnerable than just like falling asleep in bed or on the sofa and then knowing that you're not safe no matter where you fall asleep, so obsessed and this is why I'm here (laughs) thanks (laughs) Freddie
1: it is absolutely a very primal sort of fear that this whole franchise tries to tap into loses its way a little bit along the way but uh Mm -hmm.
3: <laughs> right yeah i mean he definitely gets you can't you know it's undeniable he gets really quirky and goofy and it just becomes like this series of like skits and punchlines. and if you watch a lot of it today you know he's referencing a lot of the jokes are just of the time so he just doesn't even come across mm-hmm. but i think that's why new nightmare is a standout because it, it had gotten pretty goofy (laughs) and then (laughs) when Bob Shea reached out to Wes Craven because I know they had a falling out and there was all kind of issues there with like how Craven was being um, credited and he wanted Bob Shea wanted to make it right and so he gave Wes Craven the opportunity to redo something and from what I've read and like with the documentary Wes said that he went back and looked at all of the previous film so what a new nightmare is what like nightmare seven so seven. they had done seven. yeah so it's seven so they did the first one wes was involved in he wrote and he wrote the screenplay and he directed and then um he was involved in nightmare three dream warriors which is another standout like that Absolutely. when you think of when i think of the franchise it's like one, three, and a new nightmare. I think yep. those are those are going to be the standouts, and other, the other ones have like cool things like Freddy versus Jason. That's they have their cool. merits, yeah. Yeah, but the ones that are just really true to the essence of what I think Wes was going for is that one, three, and seven. And so Wes said that. So when he started thinking about what to do, he went back and looked at the previous ones, and he's like, there was really nothing that he could continue on, and so that's why he wanted to then look back to the original mm-hmm. and see and that's why seven and one are really paired together because seven's just referring back to one and we were talking a little bit before we went live about scream and I feel like a lot of the ideas that Wes started in a new nightmare he continued on with scream because screams all yes. like it's all like referencing the again slash- yeah.
2: it's interesting because with new nightmare it's all about like the actors and the people involved and screams all about the audience
3: yes yes. And so I think he was just, like, you could tell, like, he just had all these ideas. And it's just cool when you think of, like, he's a horror master. There's no denying Wes Craven is one of the masters of horror. Like, he showed us, like, brutal realism with, like, The Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes. And it's interesting that he did that. So he did, like, this realism with those two films. Well, really, like, The Last House on the Left is really intense realism. And then he kind of went supernatural a little bit with Freddy Krueger. But... He had a lot of really interesting ideas that you kind of see throughout his body of work. And a new nightmare is, you know, you look at it, you watch it today, and you're probably, you know, the effects are <laughs> going to be a little strange, but that's uh,
2: yeah, normal.
3: <laughs> yeah, but there are still really cool ideas in it. And um, I write horror adaptations of fairy tales. And when I went back and I rewatched New Nightmare, I'm like, holy shit, he's referencing throughout. Hansel and Gretel, and like you get the breadcrumbs, and you have the whole scene with Freddie. It's like a furnace, but it's like an oven, and you know the little boy and the little girl shoving the witch in the oven, and they even say that at the end. It's like, oh, the witch is dead, and so it's it's definitely like now rewatching it. I'm like, oh shit, it's a total fairy tale, a new nightmare. Wes was doing that too, so not only was he referencing the genre or making commentary about the genre, referencing the first one, but this is also a fairy tale adaptation too. I'm like yep. this. He had so many cool ideas, and when you sit back and you look at his work, and you're like, it was brilliant.
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I had completely forgotten that element of this movie. I hadn't revisited this. I mentioned in one of our previous reviews that I didn't watch most of these when I was young. Most of them I saw when Nick lent me his DVD box set. I think I might have seen bits of New Nightmare before that, but I, I certainly hadn't seen the whole thing. And I had completely forgotten the fairy tale allusions to it. And obviously, like your work has been you know, very frequently influenced by fairy tales, including your upcoming work. Crime Scene has a Hansel and Gretel reference early on. Oh, so totally. when we got to that bit of this movie, I said, oh, that's pretty perfect. So again, it's I was so excited this one worked out. I do want to mention, too, on that, since you mentioned the the first and third one, for anyone listening to this who hasn't checked it out, you were also on an episode of The Pod and the Pendulum.
3: I was. Where
0: you discussed Dream Warriors. Yes. So so anyone who wants to check that out, head to The Pod and the Pendulum. I think it was around August of 2020 is the episode to hear Cynthia talk about Dream Warriors.
3: We geeked out all all things Dream Warriors. (laughs) It was nuts. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's been
0: a while since I listened to
2: that one, but yeah, it was a very
0: fun chat. So, yeah, absolutely go check that out.
2: I was just going to say real quick, you know, along the lines of the kind of fairy tale aspect, this movie very much to me feels so much more of a fairy tale story than it does a slasher. In fact, the actual deaths involved in here are almost a little bit forced. And yeah. to some degree, I feel you could get the same level of. Some of them are off camera exactly yeah <laughs> i think you get the same level of tension and fear and concern for this family even if you didn't have them to some degree right if it had just been like freddie terrorizing this family and causing them to slowly kind of go crazy and have this final battle in the end where they overcome their demon you know that in itself would have been a good story even so yeah i think that that's the root of it all in this case
3: I agree. And like the kill scenes in here aren't the the big kill scene is the babysitter in the hospital, because that's all like referencing Tina's character and a little bit of Johnny Depp's character. But Tina and mostly Tina in uh, the first Nightmare. But like the, you know, character that plays because it wasn't really her husband, but it was like playing a version of Heather Langenkamp's uh, husband. Um, Heck, his death wasn't that. Memorable. It was that death in the <laughs> hospital that you're just like when she's being dragged up on the wall.
0: Yeah, his death was apparently a late addition. Yeah, where apparently, I guess New Line had said, "Yeah, you need another death earlier in there." All right, yeah. they threw in this. It, it, it was like the third best car death in the franchise. It was not.
1: But
2: that's the thing. It's another throwback to like the fifth one. You know, where the guy falls asleep behind the wheel. You know, it's yeah. It was a callback, which is fine. It felt shoehorned. It felt kind of like you forced in.
1: I have to say, I was a bit fascinated by the the kill count effectively, you know that her husband dying for sure that made sense, and then recreating the the first murder in this one made sense to do it, but i you know for essentially a slasher franchise for them to have a throwaway line about two of the characters that were introduced just being sliced up in the desert yeah. and them not showing that that was weird it, it really see i had I had never seen this until this week, so you know, it was kind of coming to, I guess, fresh eyes, but that really, almost more than anything else, surprised me and really, I mean, I, I don't have any great point about it. It was just, it was really interesting that they just, because it's a slasher movie or it, you know, a slasher franchise. This is not a slasher
2: movie. I I wouldn't call it that at all, really. How they kept trimming it back. Like they trimmed out yeah. the Freddy mobile idea with like the giant car with razors in the front. They cut out the Freddy spider yep. that was supposed to like be terrorizing Robert England. They cut out Wes being like, you know, running around in a van trying to avoid Freddy with his eyelids cut off. You know, it's like there's.
3: Yes, that would have been cool. I
2: I agree. But.
3: (laughs) So cool. Yeah. I'll
1: give you the other two. Not so much the spider. Don't need spiders. Plenty (laughs) of
2: spiders. It's interesting, though, because, like, you know, with those, if they had included all of that, you would have gotten a little bit closer to its slasher roots. But I think you would have taken away from the bits that really shined in this, which was the fairy tale aspect. So I think it does better without it, honestly, as cool as those scenes would be. (laughs) And, And like we said, he's, he
1: clearly was not interested in making a slasher movie. He clearly was interested in exploring a lot of different things. There's a lot in this, like this is a pretty packed movie with ideas. In fact, it feels for me just to toss this out there again. I had never seen this and watching this while having seen scream, is kind of an interesting perspective because this feels very much like a warm up for Scream. Yes. It, it even kind of looks the same. Like there's a visual quality to this, looks like Scream. Like even the the Freddy at the end looks like a dude in costume more so than a dude in makeup.
0: Yeah. Um, th- there's a lot of stuff, I mean, aside from, like you said, the whole meta textual element, like I said, which makes this a proto Scream. And, and another thing, and later in the episode, Nick will do a production rundown at some point but one of the things worth mentioning at the top is this was one of the first projects that Patrick Lussier was the editor on after working with Wes Craven on Nightmare Cafe and Lucier would go on to be the editor of at least the first three Scream movies so it even then has that sort of rhythm yeah. to the cuts mm-hmm. and kind of the visual language that the Scream movies have absolutely but to circle back to what Cynthia mentioned talking about Wes Craven's whole, you know, body of work. One of the fascinating things about we've only done a handful of Craven movies so far on the pod, but the first one we did was The People Under the Stairs. We did that all the way back in 2020 in our first year and such a good movie. Kind of working out of that, it's been fascinating seeing what a socially conscious filmmaker Craven was which is very apparent in People Under the Stairs, but factors into one degree or another in pretty much all of his work. And this movie also, interestingly enough, being in around that time frame, this was the movie right after People Under the Stairs. In the middle, he was working on the Nightmare Cafe TV series, but this was the next feature after it. So you have Wes Craven in a period in his life where, similar to what Jake was just mentioning, is it, it feels like it's a point where He was very much interested in horror, but not so much in kind of the traditional scary elements to the degree that they're very much kind of ancillary in this film. And coming out of this film, like Jake mentioned, is I'm so impressed with the ambition of this film. Yes. With all the ideas that went into it. And like I'm not entirely sure it all coalesces quite right, you know, and it's kind of ends up being a little uneven. But the ambition is so interesting, but also for just from a thematic standpoint, like Cynthia mentioned, you know, Wes Craven coming back to this franchise that he started after all these years, and you know, finally settling up with Bob Shea, getting you know the royalties that he was missing out on, and then getting money to make this movie. And when you look at this movie, and this is this is kind of a weird way to put this, but it's the only way I can say it. This movie is ostensibly Wes Craven was given eight million dollars. To make a cinematic diss track.
3: <laughs>
0: this movie is essentially Wes Craven's hit em up because, very much
3: the,
0: the thematic element of this movie, there's a lot, but kind of the core one in looking at his whole filmography is looking at critics or parent organizations or whoever and saying, for 20 years, people have tried to say that my work is detrimental to the well being of children. And What's actually detrimental to the well-being of children is the world. So you have two choices. You insist that the solution to this is sleep or to numb ourselves and pretend things don't exist. Or we can use the storytelling tools at our disposal to give shape to these things that we don't want to face and actually accomplish something.
3: So I found this great Wes Craven quote that totally ties into what you're saying. So this is what he had told BuzzFeed years ago. You don't enter the theater and pay money to be afraid. You enter the theater and pay your money to have the fears that are already in you when you go into a theater dealt with and put into a narrative. Stories and narratives are one of the most powerful things in humanity. They're devices for dealing with the chaotic danger of existence. So wow. I just thought that like completely complemented what you were saying, that he recognized the true terror is the world, not what I'm putting on the screen. I'm making a commentary about all of these awful things in the world.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. We, we talked about on the first nightmare, the elements that seem intensely personal, like in the first nightmare, we, you know, West Craven grew up in an intensely religious household um, and was very restricted on what he was able to see. And you see those elements come through. In his early filmography, like you mentioned, it comes through in in just how the extreme degrees of his early, early films seem so reactionary to his upbringing. But in the first Nightmare on Elm Street has such a fascinating relationship with religious iconography and it constantly being portrayed as absolutely futile as a defense mechanism. And in this one, this movie is also an intensely personal film, just in a very different way, but very much in terms of him kind of confronting the criticisms that have been lobbied at him for a 20 year period. And also pulling in the intensely personal elements of everyone in his orbit, you know, the personal elements of Heather Langenkamp's life, you know, asking, you know, look, is it okay if we incorporate your real life stalker into the the fabric of this film and your real life husband, ostensibly, you know, not played by the person, but shares the same name. And also it seems like Wes Craven pulling in at, by this point, you know, Wes Craven was a parent. Um, you know, his daughter has a cameo in the film as one of the nurses, and very much pulling in those you know, the new set of fears of being a parent and adding that whole dimension to it.
1: Certainly he did a better job of inserting himself into his fiction than Stephen King did with the gunslinger franchise.
3: <laughs> it's funny going back and rewatching this, I definitely I grew up in a very intensely religious household. Very, very mm. very, very Catholic. We were like Super Catholic. We observed all, like, I'm telling you, Catholic. And um, <laughs> going back and re-watching this, yeah, I see all the religious imagery and it makes sense why I was so drawn to this in my youth because I just remember in, growing up and how scary it was to see all these candles and these saints statues and it was very creepy. Like, my mother kept all of these, like, religious imagery throughout the house and then mm-hmm. I just remember with watching, you know, the Nightmare franchise, you know, that we have his mother was a nun and there's, there was a lot of like religious undertones throughout it. Like even in this one, the son asks Heather Camp, like, why does God let bad things happen? Yeah. And I just remember, you know, children ask those types of questions. And so it's just interesting that things like that still, um, even in his adulthood, you would see that seep into his work.
0: Yeah. And... In terms of the imagery that kind of comes through in talking, the early ones kind of had all this religious iconography, and this one it manifests more so in. I, I was really struck by a lot of the imagery in this, but not so much the horror imagery, or at least not so much in in the same way that you had you know, the stuff in the first one with you know the the stretching arms and you know where he peels his face off and stuff like that. A lot of which is repeated in this film very deliberately, but. Like the simple image of a child's toy that has been slashed open, mm. and you know the simplicity of that. The concept of the earthquake fissures looking like claw marks. We get the finale where Freddy apparently resides in a Babylonian abattoir. Yes, <laughs> which that whole finale is like I I kind of don't want to pay attention to what's going on. I just want to look at the set.
3: But it's interesting that they never said what he was. They just said he's an ancient entity. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, I wonder why Wes did that. Why did he leave it so open-ended? And so like an ancient entity and then this reference to story that he was essentially trapped within the story. But then the moment the story ended, that first leg of the nightmare franchise, then Freddie was able to slowly start pushing against reality to try to come out. And so I just thought that was a really interesting concept that, Story, and I, and I kind of thought about like a never ending story too. And when I'm thinking about like yeah. fairy tales and like how yep. you know entering this fairy tale world, that essentially the story has ended, and so now the monster can escape the story. So I just thought that was really interesting, and I would have like I kind of want to see that concept like, explored a little bit more. But um, that'd be nice, yeah. But entity, he called it an ancient entity, but didn't say what it was, didn't give it a name, so. I was curious.
1: The, the, I think that particular thing was handled better than it was in the, the previous one, where they try to make him an ancient dream demon, and there's those oh, three
3: yeah.
1: floating worm fish things. Three,
3: yeah,
1: yeah. Th- this was much better with that, but it, it's still interesting that that's a concept that, that both films hit on. You know that this was some further back kind of story, and I, you know, I I found that fascinating. I'm I'm with you. I would have loved to have seen that explored more. Freddie being, you know, sort of the avatar of, or, you know, inhabited by some ancient thing.
3: And then you need a story powerful enough to contain it. And then yeah. once it's gone, once it's not contained, it attacks innocence. And so Wes had said in, um, never sleep again, the documentary that, you know, people that hurt children are the you know ultimate worst things. And so that's mm-hmm. what, you know, Freddie did. And, and we know that, You know, he's he is a pedophile, but they kind of backpedaled from that in the first one, and they just kind of called him a child murderer. I think because, you know, at the time, the satanic panic, and there was a lot of things going on, and so I think they backpedaled it a little bit, and then they kind of revisited it in 2010 in the remake. So that's I think that was another concept that kind of drew me to the franchise, how he was a child murderer, and this idea of, like, vigilante justice, and people, you know, the community took it into their own hands to, like, kill him but then they were cursed for killing something that was evil and then what suffered their children and so it's like this this cycle where people were trying to like contain or stop something that was just completely evil and it wasn't going to stop hurting children and it just didn't stop hurting children even in death and so i just thought that was that's something that's kind of stuck with me that even trying to end this evil didn't help it just continued on so
1: and that idea of mob justice against evil entities is certainly something still being explored in movies today that this, I think was a little less this franchise handled it a little less ham fistedly than what was the, the Halloween two? What Halloween kills, Halloween kills, which the whole movie is a take on that. And we'll, we'll eventually cover that, but I'd say <laughs> uh, ham fisted is probably the nicest way I could describe a lot of what that did, even though I liked the film, but, this one, I think, looked at it a little more seriously. Maybe not the TV show, but the movie itself and the way it's discussed. It's interesting. It's an interesting concept.
2: A bit off topic. I believe Eric had mentioned the quakes, and I always found that a very interesting part of this movie because the quakes are such a, a constant part of it, almost as if to give the impression that, you know, Freddie is trying to literally break through the other side, and it's affecting the world as a whole, shaking it up. And the effects on it are like, the house is constantly disarray because it keeps shaking and they have just gotten to the point where they're just not cleaning up after it. Now, how the walls crack in a way that, you know, like look like slash marks come across. In fact, I think he swipes at her later in the film and his move goes right down the, the line as if it like was predicting the attack. I thought that was really well done. And the neat thing is, is that, you know, all the actors were like, okay, these quakes are a little excessive the way we're filming them they're kind of over the top this uh, is a good idea this seems a bit much and then two weeks before production ended the actual quakes hit (laughs) california Mm -hmm. and they're just like we were wrong you were doing it right i mean you captured the feel of this perfect this is how the earthquakes feel (laughs) and then they sent the secondary crew out to actually get footage of uh, buildings that were actually destroyed and there's like that almost whole montage where she's driving. And you just see one after the other uh, locations that are just devastated by this. And I thought it was interesting. They're able to bring a touch of that realism into this movie about realism for starters. And even before they knew they were doing it, they were truly capturing that look and feel of the quakes. And it equated perfectly uh, to that entity coming across. I loved it.
3: Yeah, no, that's a really great point. The quakes and, and him trying to break into the world and that, that instability yeah, no I, I i definitely saw
0: that and thought about that too the the quake thing is getting ready to send me on a tangent then i'm going to refrain from we'll get into it later in the episode but it's you're talking about the reality of it and the quake scene specifically drove me nuts oh because the very first earthquake sequence after the the, the opening sequence which turns out to be a dream and it goes right the waking from the dream goes right into you know the, the middle of an earthquake is what jolts everyone awake there is a stock ceramic shattering sound effect. I don't know the name for the file, but it's it's basically the Wilhelm scream of ceramic breaking, where if you hear it, you know it. In fact, listen, because I already have it and I'm going to put it in and post. Oh. <laughs> and they spam that one sound effect loudly five times yeah. in the span of like six seconds. And to the point where I was like, that's jarring. And just a little thing was like, you had to have had more than three ceramic shattering sound effects for you to not, because it's not, it's loud. It's very much at the forefront. And initially I said, what's peculiar sound stuff. And they keep using it when when they're at the cemetery and the statues start toppling the first statue that topples. It's that sound effect. They're just, keep using this particular glass break effect. But then there's in tandem with that, there's the score to the movie and the score to this movie is all over the place. I agree. And, and I mean that in a good, there's electronica, there's anvil hits and, and You've got, you know, full choir at bits. And then you get the finale where all of a sudden it goes, Christopher young, a la hellraiser period and cranks it up to 11. And everything is so all over the map. And it's like, is this deliberately trying to like make us cognizant? Is this like another meta element where there are these bits that are overtly distracting in terms of the execution of it, which are then to remind you that you are, in fact, watching a movie like to the point another interesting one is the camera work. And I, I would need to go back and look at the camera work in a, in a lot of the other Wes Craven movies. But. In People Under the Stairs, which was before this, we, we talked in our view of that, that one of the things he was fascinated with was getting more of a documentary feel, as he referred to it, with his movies. And, and his DP on that movie was a documentary camera person. And with this movie, all of a sudden, it's almost all handheld. And it's so jarring to see all this handheld camera work, even if it's not in a, a The movie's not as actively pursuing, you know, jump scares and whatnot as the other Elm Street films. It's still odd to see all this handheld camera work. Now, it goes away when they go into the dream sequences in the finale. So the bit where, you know, the level of reality transitions. But just so many interesting choices. You know, the whole thing about when they have Freddy Krueger in this and they show him very deliberately in bright light, you know, the fluorescent lighting, which gives his where it's like oh yeah that's makeup he's wearing like it very much you can't hide some of the elements of the makeup so that's just an element of the movie i'm still wrestling with it was like it was, was this a whole nother like four-dimensional chess element in the execution of this or and even
3: his costume like he he has a black or dark blue or black or charcoal colored tweed jacket mm-hmm. and at one point he's wearing a green felt hat and the hospital scene and it's such a strange he almost looks like a supernatural monster detective yeah (laughs) a
2: a noir feel to it yeah
3: right right it's very strange and so i wonder like i know I, i just know they wanted him to feel darker and more sinister and less you know campy like he had very few lines in this yep and the glove it was meant to feel more organic and like bone and muscle like a tendon yeah. but i just i still don't understand the jacket and the hat I'm still confused <laughs> about that because i mean i've written like children of chicago was about the pipe piper and the funny thing is i'm sitting there and i'm watching it I'm like holy shit like the moment i saw him stand up in the hospital and he has a jacket and hat i'm like did i remember that image when i was writing children of chicago because he reminded me of what i envisioned the pipe piper looking like with the hats and the jacket so very
0: strange yeah another interesting choice in terms of like you changed it but but the things they chose to change yeah it's peculiar i do kind of like the white contact lenses particularly for what it's for this particular movie's plot where essentially in this movie like i said it's an ancient entity that's basically you know wearing freddy krueger as a costume basically mm-hmm. so i like the element of the white contacts there the idea that there's something you know underneath all this, where that is a unique element to this Freddy. The other costume choices, though, it's like, it's like, that's, again peculiar as far as why they went with what they did.
1: You know, thinking about it as a quick aside, when they're in the, the ancient temple, you see the seven deadly sins on the walls and stuff. So maybe it's the Rock of Eternity. <laughs> maybe it's actually Black Adam in there. I, yeah. In, in terms of his appearance, the notes I had that it, it was interesting because they make a lot of effort to make him kind of back to his more cruel roots rather than his kind of snappy latter days, darker, more menacing. Yeah. But looking at him, he looks more cartoonish to me. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that's just my, you know, 2020, whatever the hell year it is, eyes versus, you know, 1995. But it, it looked like a conscious choice to make him physically more cartoony or more. I, I, I don't even know what it is. Like, so this, the, The recreation of the kill scene in the hospital, the perspectives on that and the way that that whole scene is felt, felt very it's it's odd. Like the perspective feels odd compared to the original. And I went back and watched the original and the original, you know, it's horrifying. And this one showing him and showing them on the scene, you know, showing so much more of what's actually happening rather than just her being awake. You know, what's happening to her and not seeing him transform that scene in a little bit it made it and, and silly is the wrong word because it's not silly in any fashion but it's it's less naturalistic the way that's shot the way that feels and sort of the way he looks like and you know the other freddy's he looks you know it's a guy in makeup and this one it, like i mentioned before it feels like a guy wearing a mask mm. you know because like even like the red on his sides is it doesn't look like it's part of his skin like it you know and, and that feels so on purpose with everything in this yes You know, like it's an entity wearing a Freddy mask because it's not really Freddy, obviously, because Freddy's a movie character. But it's interesting when you talk about the visuals and his costume, how if you didn't kind of get the meta textual to this, it would like, well, this looks silly. But if you're really kind of getting what's what he's putting down, it feels very on purpose and very disorienting almost to a degree.
3: I still think the costume looks best in the first. Agreed. Um, He just looks, which I'm still, I mean, it is are cool elements to what he looks like in this one but i still think that there's something so terrifying when you see that first one and the lighting and especially too
2: i do like that it's kind of transformed from like burns to more of like the skin just kind of tearing open like it looks less like a a burn victim and more of a just the evil within is literally like bursting out of his own flesh Uh, and i thought that was a nice touch and it definitely gives the look and feel. I wouldn't even say it looks like something wearing a, a mask per se. So much more as it is truly not human, and it is made of something not of, of the organic flesh we're we're used to. It's kind of the feel I got for it. It is beyond our world. He's wearing his Edgar suit. Yes, yes. <laughs>
3: and uh, the, I know you all are going to talk about the reboot, but it did not work for me at all. The way he looked.
1: I still haven't seen it, so um. You haven't seen yeah, it, yeah. that's coming up next.
3: Good luck. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you. It's rare we go into a movie where I already know Eric and Nick don't like it. Yeah, I'm not sure that's happened before. So, but I,
0: I am very interested in in revisiting it. Same yes. as this one. I'm I'm very curious to see it's the rare movie I pretty thoroughly disliked, but for very specific reasons. So I'm curious to see how my opinion holds up with that. Cynthia, you mentioned the Pied Piper elements of Children of Chicago. So I'd like to talk a bit about your work, particularly. So this episode's going to be coming out really close to the release date of your next work, which is Crime Scene, coming out from Raw Dog Screaming Press. Now, it's kind of perfect because we recently had Daniel Kraus on as a guest, who is also just releasing a true crime inspired work also from raw dog screaming press with uh, the ghost that ate us.
3: I have it right here. Yeah.
0: Yep. And so you have crime scene coming out, which is you had previously done into the forest and all the way through, which had a very much a thematic connection through all of the poems in that. And now with crime scene. So you're taking the approach of now having a narrative through line and approaching horror crime as an epic poem. So how did that come about?
3: So when I wrote Into the the Forest and All the Way Through, it's over 100 poems about missing and murdered women throughout the United States. And so I wrote two poems per woman. And so it's various, various cases. Some of them are like really well known among the true crime circuit. Some of them are like more obscure cases that you haven't heard of. And so just going through and when I finished Into the Forest and All the Way Through, I felt like it wasn't finished. I just felt like there was so much more I wanted to explore, Mm. but it was, it's pretty traumatic to sit there for hours and weeks and months on end researching these true crime cases. And so I wanted to do something that was just an overall commentary on true crime, true crime, the genre, and to kind of, uh, maybe put it an end to all of the I, you know ideas that I was exploring and in, into the forest and all the way through how the tragedy of there's always another case there's always another body there's always another unknown and so I, I wanted to tragically explore that sometimes we never know uh, what happens to these people and sometimes I think it's the understanding that people are the real monsters and that's some like, you know, mm-hmm. fictional, you know, supernatural thing and that there's going to be another murder tomorrow and the day after and a day after that. And so it's just this weight of crime. And so I really wanted to kind of explore that. And I felt like exploring it in individual poems wasn't sufficient. And so I just wanted to tell it as one case that can happen anywhere at any time in history. Mm. So that's what Crime Scene is. It's about 80 poems, just a single narrative. It doesn't end well, <laughs> like most of my stories. <laughs> I do not write happy endings, even though I write uh, fairy tales. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons many readers don't like me, because you're, you're going into one of my stories.
0: Your whole Dark uh, Holidays one had a happy ending, depending on perspective.
3: Oh, that was kind of cute. <laughs> that was <Yeah>. so <laughs> I wrote about ghouls, a mother and a daughter ghoul. But yeah, for the most part, I do write pretty just tragic stories that don't end well and that make you want to throw the book across the room. And if I do that to you, then I feel like I've succeeded. So
2: those are the best kind of stories. Yeah. I, I've seen way too many happy endings. I, I always welcome a good tragic ending. <laughs> <laughs> a good
3: gut punch there. at the yeah. end. Yeah. 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 That's just like something that just kind of leaves you thinking like, this is a fucked up world we live in. Yeah. It's scary. It's scary. Some of these things. And, um you know, after it, I used to consume tons of true crime, like the podcasts and the documentaries and the books. And after I wrote Into the Forest and all the way through, it's like, I can't, I need a break because it was just becoming too heavy. And uh, it's just overwhelming. And so I think crime scene is also, at least for now, me saying, I'm not going to explore any more true crime. Crime scene is not true crime. It's just overall crime. But I think I'm at least stepping away from touching true crime for a while because it's, it is intense. It is terrifying.
1: I can't handle it. I've seen like three true crime documentaries and I like, yeah, this is enough for me. I can barely deal with having seen
3: those. Yeah. It's a lot. It is a yeah. lot. Just to see what people, what people do to people. Yeah. And it's not just strangers, but like people in families and like spouses and partners and what people will do to children. And you're like, what is wrong with what, what is How is someone capable of doing something like that to somebody? And it's just, I just cannot wrap my mind around it. And I think that's part of the fear Like you can't wrap your, if you cannot reason with somebody that's like that, then you're probably okay because we're not meant to understand these monsters.
2: Yeah. That kind of defines my personal horror uh, appreciation. Like, you know, you give me a good time travel twist. That's fun. You give me a big old monster guy in a suit or some like, you know, particularly alien cosmic horror S thing. I'm all for it. You give me the strangers where three random people show up and just kill a family, I'm out. I don't care. <laughs> it's like yeah. we, got a, we got enough awfulness in the world. I give me something I haven't seen.
3: Yeah which is loosely based off of a row of the Kitty Murders. And it's just like, yeah, holy yeah. hell. You, you, And I, I watched a documentary on that, and I'm like, I can't, I just cannot comprehend how somebody can go somewhere and do that to somebody. So I just don't want to. I,
1: I step on my cat's paw, I feel bad for like I a know. week and a half. Like, how do I, <laughs> I just can't comprehend any of that. Right? I mean, I guess that's what makes it so scary and to some degree enthralling. Like,
0: it's, it's so alien to so many of us, thank God. To that end, in terms of the difficulty of sitting through a lot of this stuff, I I did want to mention, odd as it may sound, thank you for doing it. The weight of all of that is very much felt in the poems in Crime Scene, where they're beautifully lyrical and utterly shattering at the same time. So thank you for going through that um, and, and enduring all that, because I do think the end result is phenomenal.
3: Thank you. That's wonderful to hear. I, uh, I wanted to be able to express that deep sense of pain without going through the pain again of Into the Forest and all the way through. Like, I couldn't read about another young mother getting picked up off the street, but I wanted to tell the reader that awful things happen. And every day, and it's just... It's, it's, intense weight that uh we live in this world with so much beauty and then you know you think about like a forest you think about this beautiful place and just imagine finding a corpse like in this gorgeous place it's just like this such an awful place to to die because it's so beautiful no one should no one should be killed by another person i think
0: difficult as as we just talked about how difficult it is to through apps. Please, please, please check out Crime Scene, which will be out again October 13th from Raw Dog Screaming Press. And you have another work that's being reprinted in circa January, right, Loteria?
3: Yeah, so that's, it's funny because that's a really campy kind of horror, pulpy, it's a series of 54 short stories and poems that all deal with the Loteria cards, uh, which is like a, it's a game in Mexico, similar to Bingo. And so each of the cards has a picture like la muerte, the death, or la corazón, the heart. And so what I did, I took a Latin American folklore or myth, and I wrote a short story per card. So for like example, I wrote about the lobazon. There's a, a superstition that if you're the seventh son seventh consecutive born son in Argentina that you are a werewolf so I wrote a short story about that and so I wrote a short story about yeah so (laughs) I just took all these like Latin American folk stories and wrote a horror story about it so that's going to be published by Polis in um, January and then in February the second and last book in the Chicago series comes out and that's called The Shoemaker's Magician. I guess the, it's not a sequel to Children of Chicago, but it still takes place in the same universe. It doesn't deal with the Pied Piper, but it deals with another mythical monster in the city of Chicago. And it's a little bit more fantastical. So we'll see what people, a couple of people think about that. So uh, yeah, so a lot of cool things coming out in the next few months. Yeah. And some short stories here and there as well. I think I have a, uh, short story that will be coming out in the Never Wake anthology with Crystal Lake Publishing. Okay. Uh, because they know I'm obsessed with Freddy Krueger and A Nightmare on the <laughs> Street. They're like, you probably want to write a short story about nightmares. And so that, you uh, know, <laughs> Lord Baron's going to be in that, Eric LaRocca, Gwendolyn Keist. So it'd be a pretty cool lineup of folks.
0: Excellent. Fabulous. I was looking at the back cover copy for Crime Scene, and of the the three blurbs that are currently on there, we've had. Two of them on the pod. We've had uh, Daniel Kraus and we've had Haley Piper. So you mentioned Eric LaRocca. So yes. he's the next person we <laughs> yeah, clearly we sure. need to have on.
3: Yes, have Eric on. He's great. He's totally amazing. He's a great person. Yeah, he's got tons of stuff coming out too. So yeah.
0: Yeah, he's really cranking stuff out lately. So yeah, we'd love to have him on. But Cynthia, I'm just so glad you came on the pod. I hope you had a good time because this, oh, this was a delight. So much fun. Thank you.
3: This was fun. Just hanging out, talking all things. West Craven. Freddy Krueger and the Nightmare franchise. So thank you. Thank you for having me on. This was a lot of fun.
0: Once again, big thanks to Cynthia for coming on and chatting with us. It was such a delight to get her on the pod. Thank you. Hey, thank you. Yeah, like we said in the review, please, please go check out her work. By the time this review is out, Crime Scene should be out, or this will be coming out right before. It'll be close to it. So check out Crime Scene. Check out Children of Chicago. Check out any of the myriad of anthologies that she has stories in. The easy one to go to would just be to go to her, her website which is dot so that's c-i-n-a-p-e-l-a-y-o dot c-o-m so just go there and she has a bibliography on her page check her out has links to her socials all that but yeah cynthia's fabulous we had a wonderful time talking to her so please go support her work and related i'll just say real quick before we keep going on the movie reviews a bit Uh, I do want to say a big thank you to just all of our Elm Street guests I mean we've had I say time and time again we're so blessed with guests on this podcast hell yeah we really just had a, a wonderful run of guests for the Elm Street movies in particular you know we had Hannah Duggan on who for if folks didn't listen to our review of Freddy's Revenge Hannah's married to our own Nick Leamy
2: I, I'm quite fond of her. I, I appreciate her presence. <laughs> yeah, she's, cool. she's great. You're all right, but she's great. Yeah. I, can't, I can't argue that. <laughs>
0: we had Hannah on for Freddy's Revenge. We had Haley Piper on for Dream Warriors. We had Steve Fox on for Dream Master. We had Erica Henderson on for the Dream Child. Funnily enough, later in the month that this comes out on October 26th, the second issue of Creep Show, so Skybound Press, which is a subdivision of Image is reviving creep show and there's a story in there that is going to be written by steve fox and drawn by erica henderson nice so our guests from nightmares four and five are collaborating on a story for the first time i love it right after this episode comes out so please go check that out and yeah and then we had cynthia here on new nightmare so yeah we for everyone i just mentioned we're so blessed with guests but yeah we thank everyone so much for coming on and chatting with us because all of those conversations were wonderful
1: You know, the first issue of that Creepshow comic was pretty banging. I just read that
0: the other night. Yeah, the other story in the second issue coming up is uh, Dave and Maria Lapham. Really? Yep. Well, that's exciting. So Yeah, it's a hell of a combination here.
1: So, years ago at a comic book shop, SPX, which is uh, Small Press Expo back in, oh lord, 98 or 99. Sorry, just saying that out loud maybe. But You didn't need to say it. But... David Lapham was there, and I got a little sketch from him, and it's just a little one of his characters from 100 Bullets, not 100 Bullets, Stray Bullets, and uh, it just says, you're scary. Aww. And ever since, I always went, did he think I was scary? Or did he just write
2: that? <laughs> and I've always wondered. I'm not reading any horror right now, I'm reading fantasy, though. I was thinking about maybe picking up some uh, Ray Bradbury sometime soon. Hmm. But why? <laughs> hmm. That's a hell of an idea,
1: Nick. <laughs> Let me scratch my beard thoughtfully. What fantasy are you reading? Wheel of Time. I'm reading Eye
2: of the World. Oh, wow. Where are you at? Uh oh. Uh, Perrin just got picked up by the White Capes um, in the forest. Like, they d- just passed Hawkwing Statue. Oh, man. Perrin was so cool. Is. Not.
1: No, no, no. That's not a spoiler. Like, I read those books ages ago. I and will enjoyed that fucking batardella. end you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I realize I am well past the safety net for spoilers on a series that's like, what, 40 now, years old? I haven't old? read them, but I don't but... think that's a spoiler from what I know of it. Yeah, <laughs> a... let,
1: me, let me explain my use of the term was there. I used was because I read that series ages ago. Right, yeah. Fair I enjoyed up, that it. back. So it was a past tense. Okay. It's okay. not a spoiler in any fashion. I'm not telling <laughs> Like, I'm impressed you think I can remember what happens to the 7,000 characters in that book series.
2: (laughs) The fantasy hero is calling from inside the house. (laughs) And it's also, like, even trying to
1: remember, like, what happens to different guys in that series is hard because they're all just one-syllable names. You know, the women have, like, 14 syllables and the guys all have one. And it's, like, so easy to get them confused, especially when you haven't read it in a long time. It's like Lan, Tam, Ran. Who the fuck am I?
0: Ooh, what? You know? <laughs> Matt? Spat? I don't, you know. Well, aside from prose work, since we were just talking about comics a bit, one thing I do want to throw out real quick is while we're talking new Nightmare stuff, just a couple... Oh, are we talking new Nightmare? Because it's like we just fucking ricocheted <laughs> off into the space there pretty quickly. This is turning into John Carpenter. Speaking of Wes Craven, another horror director icon, John Carpenter. Who has my probably my favorite film commentary of all time, which is a commentary on Ghosts of Mars, where it's him and Natasha Henstridge, and he gives up like ten minutes in <laughs> and, and says outright, he goes, "I don't want to talk about this anymore." How are you doing, Natasha? And they just talk. <laughs> this will be the cinematic equivalent. Of that. I don't know if I have any, it. Was, how you guys doing? But
2: that's awesome.
0: No, on the subject of comics, because I was just reading a comic that was somewhat tied into dreams. If anyone's looking for creepy, dream-centric comic stuff. I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch, but one I read recently is one called Tremor Dose, which is written by Michael Conrad, and it's illustrated by Noah Bailey. Michael Conrad's currently co-writing a bunch of comics with Becky Clunan. This was a really fun, it's kind of a mix of genre, but horror is absolutely one of them, and Noah Bailey has this very charcoal-shaded aesthetic and and this very unique art style, and, and there's a lot of surreal, creepy dream imagery in it. It should be available digitally because it was comiXology first. This is the print version that was put out by Dark Horse. Also, not really horror, but we had previous guest, Danny Lore who joined us for the Blade Review. Danny's fabulous. And Danny, of course, wrote Queen of Bad Dreams for Vault. I'm wearing my Queen of Bad Dreams shirt while we talk about this. So there's that. And something else I'll mention, though I haven't read it, is you know who else wrote a comic? Wes Craven. West Craven wrote a five-issue miniseries called Coming of Rage. Oh, I love it. Which was co-written with Steve Niles. So it's a five-issue mini. I've read the first issue, and I'm, I'm going to finish it. I just only had time to read the first one for this. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. For anyone who hasn't checked it out, if you're a West Craven completist and you haven't read it, look up Coming of Rage. I forget the publisher offhand, but look up Wes Craven, Coming of Rage, you'll see it. Again, he co-wrote it with Steve Niles, who, anyone listening to this, you probably know from... a billion horror things but particularly 30 days of night is probably the big one he's known for so yeah just a couple quick comic things and it's appropriate because the movie we're talking about tonight is basically the cinematic equivalent of animal man number 19
1: very much so very much so you know just one more quick aside because why wouldn't we you were talking about john carpenter and I, i i just like two days ago saw a little video of him And it's he's at a con and, you know, there's an open floor, open questions. And somebody says, you know, escape from New York was great. But what happened with escape from L.A.? And he doesn't respond. He just flips the guy off. He says, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) I have never wanted a guest more on our podcast than I wanted John (laughs) Carpenter at that moment. I think he'd enjoy us. Just putting that out into the universe. Uh, He would enjoy Jake
0: because he's a big basketball person. That's true. And and a hater. So (laughs) I feel like we would be bros. I think so. It's funny. I was thinking about that watching this movie because and I, I have to assume someone has already made this joke at this point. But like spinning out of Wes Craven's new nightmare, like at some point, was there a pitch to do John Carpenter's new Halloween? Oh, man mustafa cod meeting with jamie lee curtis and saying we want you to play laurie one more time and <laughs> jamie saying oh i don't know is john directing well we sent him a script but we're not sure he can read it through the haze of weed smoke <laughs> 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 just john carpenter on the phone and mustafa god you want me back do you revenge of michael myers not working out for you who the fucking thunk <laughs> <laughs> you could take all that cult of thorn bullshit and stick it up wait how much money
1: <laughs> I'm in.
0: <laughs>
2: that movie was so bad. <laughs> well, that,
1: that, that would be perfect after we, you know, we wrap up the current Halloween reboot, which is not going to stick the landing. It's just not. Give it, give it a shot. There's always a chance. We got a chance. Look, we really got to cover this because I keep bringing this up on the podcast. Like I feel like I'm bursting at the seams to talk about this movie. <laughs> but the way the second one ends, and the trailer for the third one don't correlate to the way the third one should be. So, like, I I just, I set myself up for disappointment, just all on my own, really had nothing to do with anybody else. And I'm disappointed. So, you know, that's that's how that works. It's kind of like being a sports fan, where you know it's going to happen, and then it fucking happens, and you're like, this happened, and it sucked. And everybody else is like, you're an idiot.
2: Every time, you do it to yourself. (laughs) Every time, 100% of the time.
0: You know how, when we did our Constantine review back in issue issue 52 <laughs> episode 52 for that one issue is appropriate well yeah because we talked about how there was the comic series called 52 which went from 1 to 52 and then when it ended they went right into a series called countdown which went from 52 down to zero so we could do the nightmare series straight through from 1 to the remake and then go into halloween and do it backwards start with <laughs> and <then> work backwards. <laughs> so that would be our countdown <laughs> string of reviews
2: i like it i hate it <laughs> Perfect then,
0: <laughs> but it would kind of work out because every other franchise review, it's like you know, it's essentially all downhill as you go through it. This one is like, I, I know there's a good one waiting for me at the end. So.
1: <laughs> hey, I like the current iteration. I'm just disappointed with what they're doing with three. That's all. I wouldn't go so far as to call the second one a good movie, but holy fuck, did I enjoy the hell out of it! I think of it as a
2: bridge film, like its purpose was to get you from the first one to the third one. That's it. I- I barely think of it as a film. <laughs> it was an experience.
1: So, new nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're so bad at staying on topic sometimes, but uh, like you know, after talking to Cynthia, it's like, well, you know, now it's just you guys again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Much like film franchises, it's all downhill after the Cynthia <laughs> version. Like we had our fabulous guests, now it's just us. Well, it's-
2: let's get through the production stuff then.
0: Yeah, let's get to that, I'll,
1: and then I'll do my uh, community connection. We'll get through our bits. Really, just get that shit out of the way before we start
2: talking about fucking Aliens 9 or whatever again. So, as we have multiple times said, this is Wes Craven's New Nightmare, released in 1994. Uh, written and directed by Wes Craven, who also brought us such lovelies as Scream, People Under the Stairs, The Hills Have Eyes, and Swamp Thing. It's edited by Patrick Lucier, who uh, also worked on the 2009 version of My Bloody Valentine. Dracula 2000, mm-hmm. Apollo 18, uh, the 2008 version of The Eye, Scream 1, 2, and 3, and Mimic. I love Mimic. And directed
1: some of those movies you mentioned as well. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't I haven't seen it, but wasn't the 2009 My Bloody Valentine bad enough that we got 10 more seasons of Supernatural? Isn't <laughs> <laughs> that basically how that works? I
0: don't remember it being that.
1: I, d- I never saw it. I know that and The Fog came out. and then I've only seen the original. They were like, you know what? The hell with it. We're staying with Supernatural.
0: Wasn't that in the same era, kind of, as the Nightmare Remake? Wasn't that around? Like, I don't think it was a Platinum Dunes film, but wasn't it around the time they were doing all those Platinum Dunes movies? I'll have to look up. It's It's been so long. I need to look up the timeline. But
2: I know It and The Fog came out right around the same time. Yeah. They're really big into redoing classics and not so well. <laughs> I like the original My Bloody Valentine. It has some flaws, but it, it's a ride. It's a weird movie. It's a very
1: weird movie. <laughs> so, My Bloody Valentine. We're going to oh, go, It's it about Valentines? Nah,
2: minors. <laughs> <laughs> what? Cinematography by Mark Irwin, who worked on Scream. Vampire in Brooklyn. Man's Best Friend. I Come in Peace.
0: Nice!
1: Fright
2: Night 2. 1988's The Blob. 1986's The Fly. The Dead Zone. Scanners and The Brood. Wow! Yeah, it's a hell of a, lot a lineup. Lot of cred
1: for cred. Yeah. Boy, Fright Night 2 just kind
2: of stands out in that lineup. <laughs> <laughs> I still need to see that one. I saw the first Fright Night. I haven't seen the second. I saw the remake. Really? Yeah, but not the second one. Need is a strong word. <laughs> you scene. guys
0: would like it. It's well, I don't know if you'd like it. It's Tommy Lee Wallace. You guys love Tommy Lee Wallace. Mm-hmm.
1: I I've seen it. I it didn't. I mean, granted, I saw it way back when, so maybe it's better. Maybe I, I would enjoy it more now. But I remember not liking it at all.
2: Not included in any of this list would be the Fright Night remake, which I really quick want to say my, is one of my favorite vampire scenes I've ever seen. Oh, I'm not allowed in the damn house? He digs up the gas line and blows the whole place up. <laughs> yes! Anyway,
1: moving on. <laughs> it has a great soundtrack too. I, I didn't
2: like the movie but it had a great soundtrack. Special Makeup Effects by Greg Nicotero, who also worked on The Green Inferno, Movie 43. Yeah. <laughs> The Bright Night remake, Predators, The Last Exorcism, Jennifer's Body, Drag Me to Hell, The Mist, Hostel, Identity, Thirteen Ghosts, Lord of Illusions, and In the Mouth of Madness. And twice, twice, he is our uh, John Carpenter connection with Ghost to Mars and Vampires.
3: Yay! <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know that that's one we definitely have to do is
0: Ghost to Mars. Uh. <laughs>
1: precisely because of the noise Eric just made yeah I
0: know that's why you want to do it
1: <laughs> no I want to do it because I deeply and sincerely love that film yeah yeah of course you do and I recently rewatched it because it's like well everybody shits on this movie but I remember loving it maybe I was you know fucking high I saw it in college with Bernie and things could have been involved and then I rewatched it I'm like no wait shit I just fucking love this movie and I don't know what that says about me. Probably nothing good. But nonetheless, I really like that movie. We should do it. Of course you like it. It's Ice-T shooting like Mars ghosts. Yes. <laughs> and it's like Jason Statham's new first movie. It's like Pam Grier's in it. I don't understand why people don't like it. Like, it's confusing to me. We'll assist you with that.
2: But <laughs> <laughs> We'll get to that.
0: <laughs> Actually, I, I would love to rewatch it. Much like kid, I would love to rewatch it. again. Like I, I said at the top, it has one of the best film commentaries ever.
2: Music by J. Peter Robinson, who also worked on The Wraith, The Gate, and Blind Fury. (laughs) Because I'll watch anything with Rutger Hauer in it.
0: (laughs) It's funny you mention Blind Fury, because J. Peter Robinson... That might
1: be the only time that sentence has ever been uttered (laughs) in the history of human language.
0: (laughs) Blind Fury is, and I'm just going off memory here, but if I remember correctly, that's directed by Philip Noyce. Mm. nice who directed the pilot for nightmare cafe which j peter robinson did the score for because that's the television show that west craven launched before doing new nightmare nice and i just watched the first episode of it today as part of the prep for this nice remember how it came up in our people under the stairs review that west craven really liked twin peaks mm-hmm. yep west craven really liked twin peaks it's not carbon copy, but there's a lot of the you know the lynchian dream logic it's just sort of the kind of the the more levity intensive bits of twin peaks nightmare cafe is kind of that concentrated
2: okay
0: at least based on the pilot but Hmm. it was an interesting watch but yeah philip Noyce did the pilot for that so we
2: were also produced and distributed by new line cinema who had done the same with it the conjuring and malignant and do you have anything I missed, Eric? No, no, that that covers it, I think. Yay. <laughs> I like when I catch all the hooks you were excited about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that that's a pretty impressive pedigree for this film. Yeah, and it shows. It's a quality film. I mean, yeah. it's a reason why one of the reasons why I think it might be my favorite. Just hands down. Really? Yeah. Because I, I don't know what it is. So- More than five? Sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to see if I could make Nick's brain skip a record.
0: Actually, Nick dislikes six more than five. <laughs>
2: it's a hard toss between this and three, honestly. I, I like hmm. the, the realism. I like the slow build terror. I like the less campy approach to it. And this is totally contradicting shit I said before. And I get that. Because, <laughs> you know, I basically said that's usually my job.
1: Everybody's
2: kind of to You know, in, in the series before this, the more Freddy talks, the more quips he has, the more kind of ridiculous he gets, the more I start to enjoy it to some degree because, like, it's this personality is kind of exuding from him. But that being said, this character is so much darker and more serious and has this, exudes this terror instead of having to, like, back it up with, you know, random torturous sayings. It really comes through. Well, it's not Freddy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. It almost feels like a different genre to some degree, but it's really well done, and I feel the characters really drive it home. I enjoyed it. I, it. It's not
1: anywhere near my favorite.
0: Really? Yeah. Allow me to express my surprise at that, for a very specific reason, because there's one particular reason I thought this would be way higher on your list, because... This wasn't made in like those early days, like we talked about, like the early West Craven, the mean West Craven, like back in the day. No, this is mid '90s West Craven. This is the era where you know, West Craven really was pushing on a lot of you know sociological themes, and you know really had an agenda going into a lot of his films. Like I mentioned, this movie is <laughs> I said it before. It's the man got eight million dollars to make this movie, which is. This movie is a lot of things, but one big thing it is is it's a cinematic diss track. Yep. It's him saying, Fuck all the critics. It's Wes Craven's Hit him Up. The other one I was also thinking that also got stuck in my head, and it's not a diss track, but the other one I couldn't get out of my head was Wes gonna give it to
2: you. <laughs> <laughs> nice.
0: Which is a terrible joke, but I kind of want him to actually do it just so you can get Robert Englund to do a Freddy krueger ish intro where he says, Fuck what you dreamt, it's what you're dreaming. <laughs> but specifically, I mean this is post people under the stairs Mm -hmm. where jake he had an agenda and it's one of your favorites because that agenda was bringing back slides and you get that in this movie you get slides (laughs) two movies in a row Wes craven's like i'm bringing them back (laughs) the first one it was kind of like you know the the Rube Goldberg esque, you know, slides appear, in this one all slip and slide going into (laughs) Freddy's Babylonian abattoir. But there's that one sequence towards the end. Ah, slides. Look,
1: and I and I realize this is, and I'm not criticizing the movie by any stretch. I, you know, it's it's hard for me to not like a film where the fucking, you know, the the entire climax takes place on the Rock of Eternity. (laughs) And (laughs) but all right, so it's it's kind of odd why it wouldn't rank. I mean, it's probably fourth. I'd say wow because I I I don't know what I what I've said before just off the top of my head it's it's something like
2: three two one this okay see if if I had to tell anyone to watch this I definitely would go the route of the maybe you should watch the Heather Langenkamp trilogy like one three in this you know I feel that her arc is the most true to the entire story in my opinion yeah, you could you could definitely do that, you know, and everything outside of that loses something. Although I would never tell anybody to skip
1: two, but I like two, I think more than your average bear.
2: I like two, but I feel the crucial viewing would be one, three, in this. Yeah, I, I, you can make an argument for that. Anyway, the reason it's
1: a little bit lower for me is entirely based on when I saw it. So no, I had never seen this prior to rewatching it now, right? And it was very hard for me to watch it and not see it through the lens of Scream. Right. Like I mentioned before. Where it so much of it feels almost like him testing the Waters for what he really wanted to do. And to my mind, it just it feels like like a practice reel for Scream, which is we we haven't done it, but, you know, spoilers, who doesn't fucking love Scream? Yep. So that that to me, it takes it a little bit away from it for me, just because I it's hard for me to see it without Looking at it through that lens, like is everything feels like a a you know a dry run mm. it, it it's very good, and if you love this film, I would never argue with you I, I certainly wouldn't say like Nick just said you know the the essential three i would i could put it in that i like again, I like two a little bit more than I think most, but I wouldn't argue like you can absolutely make that case and if this was your favorite like Nick it makes perfect sense it's just for me for having come to it when I came to it and you know the the lens that I looked it through it. Knocked down a few pegs where the other ones feel a little more, I don't know, like movies. And this one feels more like something a little bit else and a little bit different and a little left. But it's, it's again, it's very good. Like, I don't have much in the way of criticisms for it. It's an entertaining one. It's, it's maybe a little overlong. Like, they take a little too long to get where they're going. But that's the only thing I would even lob anything at it. Uh, I, I, like, conceptually, it's great. The performances are a lot of fun. Heather Langenkamp is just delightful, fantastic in it. Yep. You know, the little kid is channeling his inner Danny Lloyd, you (laughs) know, talking to Tony and Rad Rom, Rad Rom. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) very much so. But it it, it sounds like it sounds just like that. So, yeah, I I have very little negative to say about this. I just, it feels, it just feels so separate from the rest of the series.
3: Yeah. To some degree (laughs) it should, though. Yeah.
1: Right. 100%, it should. So it's hard to rank it with the series, you know, <laughs> respect. I respect that. So, yeah, I feel like I sh- I would like it would have liked it more if I'd saw it without that baggage, I guess. OK, but very good movie. And I, I enjoyed it. You know, while I'm while I'm ranting, let me just sneak in my community connection here. So the day we recorded, so I started this with the miserable, you know, sports news because sports are terrible and we're just. Ruining ourselves by being fans of them. Maskist. But there is a good note today because as yesterday, they announced that there is going to be a community movie. Mm-hmm. Like all yep. over my my feeds there, I mean, I started like seeing pop ups that said, you know, hashtag end a movie. And, you know, the first one I saw, I'm like, if they're lying to me, I'm coming after somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and then they started popping up everywhere. And then they officially announced that this is going to happen. And I, look, obviously I'm a huge fan of this. So I, and I, Never really believed it would happen, but the fact that they're getting the movie, you know, and who knows if it'll be good or not. I don't really care. I still like the most recent X Files movies and the recent X Files series, so, you know, I have no judgment when it comes to shit that I love. Correct. And they make miserable. uh... (laughs) Absolutely correct. Although I stand by the fact that the, what was it, Fight the Future, whatever, the one with the Russians, that was like a pretty good episode. It just wasn't. It wasn't a movie. Like it wasn't epic. It was just a good X Files episode. Anyway, doesn't matter. So having gotten that news. And then, you know, for a big old nerd, like I wore my, I went out to lunch with my wife today and I wore my, she got me a uh, Greendale t-shirt. Oh, nice. I wore that and I was just, just real happy about it. And again, you know, sports then kicked me in the dick. But up until that point, I was just thrilled. Uh, So anyway, so tonight's community connection has nothing to do with any of that, except that we're going to get a movie and there's like 50% chance we'll probably do it on this podcast just because I'll make them it might be a special all one-off but anyway <laughs> so our community connection tonight is it, nick you'll be happy it's a very direct one oh yay it's fran bennett fran bennett of course plays dr hefner in new nightmare she also played troy's grandmother in the season one episode basic genealogy nice. which was highlighted by her beating britta in her bare ass with a switch you know the mean old nana and you know cherish britta cherish Uh, one of my favorite episodes and the Nana and that is just so great. And so to see her pop up in this, like I was already scared of her. So it really worked out. (laughs) So that's our community connection. This Fran Bennett, who is Troy's mean old Nana. She's also an eight millimeter. I don't know what to do with that information.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great community connection. When you started, I was really afraid the community connection was going to be, we're reviewing a movie, and now community has one of those. So now they're because <laughs> they're both movies.
2: <laughs> it would feel like one of his connections. How direct
0: you know? is that for you, Nick? <laughs>
1: I'm going to keep that one in my back pocket. Because okay. <laughs> the more we do anime, the harder I have to stretch things. I do
2: have a second John Carpenter connection, actually. Go for it. Because in this movie, Wes Craven is played by Wes Craven, who was in Diary of the Dead, Red Eye, and Body Bags. Yep. John Carpenter's Body Bags. So, I got two solid connections there. made me happy. There's your bumper, Eric. It's
1: just Nick going, Body Body Bags! bags. (laughs) (laughs)
3: It's
1: like, bodies? 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 Sorry. I
0: don't know if anybody
1: gets that reference, but I enjoyed it. (laughs)
0: i'm glad fran bennett was the community connection because she's one of the best parts of this movie yep oh yeah a because just she has a fabulous performance in this film she has one of the moments of the film that i think is actually genuinely effective from a horror perspective or genuinely creepy which is the bit where she comes in and, and you know they're strapping dylan down and she's like i'm gonna cut the little bugger myself and she holds up her hand and it's got she's got the scalpels and that wonderful line delivery cut this evil out of him
2: and that was she, good that was she's really good
0: so good she's so good but also I, I think that character is fascinating because ostensibly she one of the many roles of that characters we talked about this is a response in a lot of ways to you know criticisms that Wes Craven and and other horror filmmakers have gotten over the years for saying you know what you're corrupting our children what you're doing is psychologically damaging to children and young people and she's essentially you know the avatar for that opinion so you would think you know in other movies it might be like a a much more uh vitriolic i guess depiction of that like what was it roland emmerich's was it his godzilla movie where he had the stand-ins for siskel and ebert yeah, that he yeah, killed or godzilla. whatever and like comically overdone whatever but this is a it's much more nuanced like the, the way her character is played is much more nuanced than that in, you know, couching that opinion. So I thought that was very well done.
1: Agreed. You know, that Godzilla movie is another one of those movies I liked, and I feel like I'm the only one. Yep. Yeah.
0: On this podcast, you are, yeah. Yep. Yep.
1: I mean, I I won't defend that fucking piece of shit at all. It's just impossible
2: (laughs) for me to not like movies about giant monsters. I think you just like being, you know, if people don't like it, you're like, I'm going to find a way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, because I just want everybody to agree with my opinions. I don't want to be... I'm not I'm not being a misanthrope on purpose. I'm just right.
2: Wait, wait. You want people to agree with your opinions? Want. I'd love it. You. This is something you want, because nothing has ever said that to me.
1: <laughs> That's because you don't agree with me enough. <laughs> just because you think they're bad opinions, and you're wrong, doesn't mean I
2: don't want you to agree with them. I, I I just feel like, you know, maybe I could be wrong, but often me and Eric are on the same page here. <laughs> just say, it, just say that it.
1: doesn't make you right. It makes you both wrong.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Two wrongs don't
2: make a right.
1: No,
0: <laughs>
1: surely your parents have must have said that to you. <laughs> <sighs> But look, I'm not defending that Godzilla movie, by the way. Like it, It's not good. I just enjoy it because I like big monsters.
2: I have to say, speaking of people showing up to this film, I was really happy to see John Saxon again. That made me really happy. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's not who I was expecting you to bring up.
2: <laughs> who are you I, expecting? I,
0: I was glad to see John Saxon, but I was expecting you to bring up fucking W. Earl Brown. I, I was, actually! Okay. He's on my list! <laughs> All right. Because yeah, he's the <laughs> morgan attendant.
2: Yeah! Yeah, Deadwood. I love that dude. He's been in a bunch of shit, but yeah, he's, he was in Deadwood. He was in Deadwood, he was in Lost Souls, he was in Vampire in Brooklyn, and funny enough, he's in Scream. He's the camera guy in Scream. Holy shit. Oh my he god. He totally bites it. Yeah. Wow. No, but I love I love me some W Earl Brown. He, he's a good guy. He's yeah, he's so fun. But but yeah, between him and John Saxon and Hal, you know, uh Shea showing up again. Yeah, it's there's a lot of fun little mini roles in this too yeah and, and everybody in it is a lot of fun and is you know there's no like bad performances
1: i'd say it's just it's it's just a solid movie 100 you know all the way through even rob
2: shea kind of pulls it together a little bit <laughs> <laughs> just a little
0: yeah well, like i'd say i'd say wes is probably the clunkiest performance in it <laughs> and probably. and he's and he's fine so a little bit yeah he's all right the other FX guys
1: aren't so great, but they, you know, they get poochied later on. So, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, they're in it so fleetingly. So, But as far as overall opinions on it, and I, and I touched on this a bit when we were talking to Cynthia, this is a movie where I really like it, but predominantly because I really admire its ambition, mm. particularly for its time. Like Jake mentioned, it being, you know, the the dry run for Scream, essentially, in a lot of ways. And in it's. Construction of tropes and in its meta nature but it's it's a conceptually it's so interesting you know the self-insertion stuff we talked with conversation with Cynthia about how personal Wes Craven's movies are and how he, you know confronting criticisms of his career pulling in real elements of Heather Langenkamp's life with the Soccer and stuff like that so that the the ambition of it is so fascinating and, and also him throwing in all the references of stuff he loves like the the Nosferatu shot of, you know, Freddie coming out of the walls. That one scene, I got to say, every now and again, you get sequences in movies where you feel like when that scene was written, somebody just like, when they finished typing that scene, it was like, I'm hitting control S, I'm closing the laptop, I'm pouring myself a scotch because it's not getting any better than that tonight. (sighs) And it's a random one, but in that, it's not the Nosferatu bit, but the preface to that. Is Freddy arising from the bedsheets?
3: Yeah, and cutting
0: his way out. So, whoever wrote and came up with the image of Freddy emerging from a bedsheet chrysalis, yep, that's a pretty fantastic image. It would have worked a lot better if that had been the first time we had seen Freddy fully formed, but still, you couldn't do that the way the film was structured.
2: It was particularly nice because it was kind of like a reverse callback to the first one, yep, but also, uh, I like his hesitation, like he cuts through and he kind of peeks out but he doesn't actually completely break out until she accepts the role. It's it's the whole yeah, the, piece the way is it's well undercut, done. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's,
0: she says, I love you, dad. And that's when he fully yep. emerges from it. Yeah. It's that whole bit is so well constructed. Agreed. But beyond that, it's this is a film I could just keep watching <laughs> kind of on repeat because it's I keep wrangling with so many elements of it in terms of like I mentioned before, in terms of like how overt some of the Hollywood elements are. You know the the really blatant sound effects, the way the makeup looks because of the way Freddy is lit, where it feels like the movie is really overtly presenting itself as you know trying to make you cognizant that this is a movie and and playing on the whole meta element of it. Because this is also at a point in Wes Craven's career where he talks in interviews for this film about stuff he intended to be scary, and I think there are bits that are scary, but I think a lot of it is. Wes wasn't overly concerned it seems to me about being scary at this point because this was the era of you know people under the stairs and mm-hmm. nightmare cafe people under the stairs has some great creepy bits yeah horror aspects but scaring you is not it's necessarily primary concern or particularly not in the same manner as craven's earlier films yep you know after this is going to be vampire in brooklyn yeah and I forget it's been so long since I read on it, but I know at one point it was supposed to be more serious. So I don't know like at what point that changed. We'll get into it because at some point we're going to do it. So, but then he does scream, which is scary. And then he does scream. Yeah. Which is kind of, you have the, you know, the overtly comedic elements that he, he's clearly getting into so much around this time that lands so well, but also hitting the slasher elements so well. So it just kind of ends up kind of being the perfect storm. Of yep. everything that was kind of swirling around at this particular time. But yeah, it's it, I keep watching different scenes of this film. I was like, you know, did you realize that was this supposed to be scary or not? Like, for instance, there's the um we I mean, were just talking about Freddie being in the daylight, you know, there's the scene where they repeat the rotating room, except now it's in the hospital. Yep. And that scene is hilarious <laughs> <laughs> be- on several levels. Because <laughs>
2: it <laughs> what might be the mean? weakest part of the movie to some degree and awesomeness.
0: <laughs> it's well it's because so he has the bit where you know he he strikes you know the babysitter cuts her down that's great um, julie's the character's name that's truly terrifying and then he has the bit where, where he's starting to drag her and then he has you know the the line to Dylan. Like, hey dylan ever play skin the cat and then proceeds to not skin somebody.
2: Not at and all. Not, he just drags her, and it's like I I like the idea that it's the most anticlimactic kill. <laughs>
0: well, I love it because like to me, it's like clearly this creature that's inhabiting Freddie, like like where Craven outlines his concept, is that this entity was basically content while Freddie was actually being portrayed in media, and now that Freddie no longer exists, this thing is trying to become him in reality because it likes. It's such a fun idea that this thing. likes liked, the suit. It yeah. liked wearing Freddy as a sleeve, but I love the idea that it's not quite good at quips yet. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's, it's like, you can't really skin the cat. Uh, me neither. <laughs>
1: <And> then, just, <laughs> your neck. You know what happens to, to toads and lightning or whatever the fuck? <laughs> you know what happens to toads and <laughs> Same thing that happens
0: to everything. Else. To everything else. <laughs> but then you know, kills her. There's the shot of Dylan just turning around. <laughs> which i'm sorry it's hilarious uh the lead into that is the nurse getting punched in the face by julie yep. the end of that is when heather comes in and the same nurse gets elbowed in the gut which it turns out per the commentary was a shoot elbow that wasn't supposed to happen oh like heather was actually ringing and just went wham and the actors literally got elbowed in the and went oh and staggered <laughs> off screen
2: <laughs>
0: so she, the scene is bookended by this poor actress getting clocked twice huh. <laughs> so it's one of those things too where it's just like it, were you aware the the dylan scene right after that's another one of those like wes craven talks about how conceptually like it's such a terrifying thing the idea of a kid wandering out into traffic at night oh god yeah and and all the effort they put into that scene is like yeah conceptually i absolutely agree it's like an execution. Not so much. It's it's just so all over, like the giant Freddy and the clouds and all the people with the Freddy mask. And it's just, there's so many elements of this film where it's, because going through all these Wes Craven films have been so much fun. Yes. Which I've said time and time again, because even the ones that aren't great, he was clearly, there's such a level of intent and thought put into so much of his stuff. Even Swamp Thing, which is not a great movie, but even that, like I mentioned in reading the script you could see how excited he was at like, I get to do a a big Hollywood superhero film. And there was such enthusiasm clearly going into it. Didn't come out in the end,
1: but it's the greatest movie of all time. If you like swamp boat chases,
0: uh, it is that. Yeah. If you you always wish the a team had gotten a swamp, you know, a fan boat episode in, (laughs) got the movie for you. But so, yeah, so I always like just wrangling with his intent and everything that's put into his films. And I could do that all day with this one. You know, even all the stuff with Freddie at the finale, you know, there's the bits that are so comically overwrought, like the Freddie tongue, that the day they shot that, it would have been like 15 minutes of poor Robert Englund just going
3: Ugh!
0: with this prosthetic tongue. <laughs> but visually so interesting that he's in this, like we said, he lives in a Babylonian abattoir. And there's all this, you know, primordial imagery to tie him into ancient evils, where it's all, you know, it's this ancient looking set there's all serpents and eels you know when he gets his tongue cut now he has a forked tongue in it all this serpent all this you know rudimentary evil stuff like just the imagery in it is so interesting like i don't think for me the movie entirely coalesces but it's so much fun to watch and i love the ambition of it so much that it's like this is yeah i i really enjoyed watching this again um, certainly not my favorite of the franchise but i i very much enjoyed watching it again i certainly enjoyed watching it for the first time you know the one thing they could have done differently is they should have. i mean if we're redoing stuff from the first movie there's that end credits theme from the first movie that nobody ever talks about it's a nightmare it's just a dream.
1: <laughs> everybody talks about the
0: tuesday night one and talks about you know Doc and dream wars and those songs are banging don't get me wrong yeah no 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 Get someone in to cover that shit from the first movie. <laughs> you know, it's an
1: armor. It's because it's hard to track anything down about that song.
0: Yeah, I know the random band. Like
1: yeah, we talked about it on the episode, and it's just was not there.
2: It's interesting to me, the from a horror fan, slasher fan viewpoint, the sheer minuscule body count these movies have on average. Yeah, it's interesting to me that this franchise was so. Beloved and popular, and just like the zeitgeist of it, all with like what there's like four kills in this one. Oh God! If that like and one
0: of them he was was added late, which was the death of Heather's husband.
2: Which, yeah. Uh, so you know, and and it doesn't matter because in the end, it's the terror that they portray through this entity. You know, it really does carry the fear with him. It, it's not about how much gore can we put on the screen? And, you know, which is surprising when your main character is someone with like knives for fingers, <laughs> but it, it still carries through just in the, the vulnerability of it all. You know, the terror, the, the fear it, it's, I love it. I love all of it.
1: It kind of makes sense because this movie, you know, we, we talked about it before and I, I, you know, even questioned calling it a slasher in part because of that, you know, you look at the other slashes of the day and they're all about, You know, body count and ramping up the body count. Like, you got to have a death every six minutes. And this one figured out very early on in the first movie that it's not the amount, it's sort of the size of the kills.
2: You know, it's the motion of the ocean, man. There's a reason why they call them final girls. It's because everyone else fucking died. (laughs) Right. But in this one, like,
1: I guarantee you remember kills in this more than any individual kill in a Friday the 13th movie. Yeah. They're just more memorable. Yep. you know all those like. Look, I love the Halloween films, but the kills are sort of, you know, not interchangeable, I guess. But they're not; they're almost perfunctory because he's just walking around stabbing people, and occasionally, you know, moving on the, you know, throwing weed whackers and whatever the hell. But in this one, they become sort of high visual art. You know, fucking Jason isn't killing anybody by turning into a demon car, you know, or whatever the hell. So it's. It's interesting with that. It functions so differently from all of the other big franchises. In that, I guess probably the closest might be on Child's Play. I haven't seen most of those, but you know, with sort of the quippy villain.
0: That's a good comparison point. Yeah, actually, in in terms of body count, that's pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty solid. Like
1: Freddy always gets compared to Jason, but that doesn't make it that much sense. They're, They're just not similar characters, and they're not similar fucking weird conversation yeah no, if you're talking body counts in camp child's play is a good comparison Same, like you know jason and and michael myers for certain are very similar but you know freddie's always in that conversation and it just it's not he's closer like i said like that or you know penny wise than he is the other sort of mainstream slasher killers I don't know. It's interesting. It it sets this franchise apart, and I think it's a big part of why it's the one. Like this is the horror franchise of horror franchises, and I, I it's hard to argue. I mean, I guess you probably could argue that, but this still feels like this is the big daddy of all of them. You know, the top of the the mountain.
0: It's funny you mention that because I was thinking about that today before recording. Because you know, we're not done with Elm Street. We still got the remake to do, and then there's Freddy versus Jason. But we're not going to do that until we get to you know probably the thirteenth. But so we have a lot more franchises to do, but I was thinking about that in terms of like, is this my favorite of the big franchises? It was particularly on my mind because as we're recording this, the new Hellraiser from director David Bruckner and writers Ben Collins and Luke Piotrowski, who were just on our Magnetic Rose episode, which was so much fun. Please listen to that if you haven't already. That movie's very close on the horizon. It's a few days away from premiering on Hulu. And which got me thinking about the Hellraiser franchise as a whole. And then thinking about Elm Street, and I was like, is this? Like, I was like, I know that the peaks of this are so high for me, but I was like, overall, would I say this is like the, the best franchise? And I probably would, but it's funny you mentioned, because like in terms of, like, if you were to average out rankings for them, the Child's Play franchise would be really close to this for me. On average. Like this one, I think has bigger peaks, but it has bigger valleys as well. The Child's Play franchise is... I think it's shockingly consistent and really interesting to one degree or another throughout. So agreed. But it's interesting. It's funny. Not any of the ones I want to do next. Fuck Friday the 13th, fuck, you know, child play any of those. We'll do them, sure, fine. One way we want to get to is one Jake keeps bringing up. Children of the corn.
2: Yeah. Because there's
0: eleven of them fuckers. Like eleven of them fuckers. There's so many. And I haven't seen any of them.
1: He
2: who walks behind the road. That's where we
1: got to bring back our Iron Man episodes and do all eleven in one episode, like we did with Paranormal. <laughs> <Alternative>. <laughs>
0: See how quick we would go through. Yeah.
1: Well, because you got to figure there's eleven of those things. We're just not going to have that much to say about like oh we will seven through two. yeah well yeah we. Now will. that you voiced that in particular, yeah. <laughs> because we can't shut the fuck up about anything. We're
0: going to break the Oculus record at this point. Yeah, <laughs> come on, three hours on one movie. Oh,
1: I I have a lot to say about that first movie about children of the corn i haven't seen it a lot it's good it's good hold up wait yeah i haven't seen it what never saw it i've seen
0: clips we're gonna fix that do you do you have a record scratch sound effect (laughs) Uh, i don't so instead we'll do the little uh porcelain breaking thing here there there you go that'll be our equipment all right that works
1: You've really never seen Children? How is there a big horror movie I've... Wow, yeah, I'm, there I'm we stunned. Go. It's Stephen King. Of course you saw it. Shit, I'm going to go watch it after we finish recording
0: tonight. Just because. Well, I'm going to go watch the Elm Street remake after this and all th- So that's some sort of weird fucked up karmic balance there. <laughs> uh, so I,
1: before we, we we finish up with this, I just want to say, did either of you catch the note in the credits? Uh, I
2: caught that I Freddy Krueger was credited as freddy krueger as himself yeah
1: yeah no the like you know the warning you know it's sort of in the end of most things you know the yes depictions of everybody i did catch that so this one's a little different and I, i'm gonna read it some parts of this motion picture were inspired by actual events others may be attributed to the overactive imagination of a five-year-old boy the names of certain of the characters portrayed have been changed to protect the innocent certain incidents portrayed have been dramatized With the exclusion of those courageous individuals who portrayed themselves, any similarity to the name, character, or history of any person living or dead is entirely coincidental and unintentional. So it finishes normal, but it starts out with the, you know, contributed to the overactive imagination of a five-year-old boy. Love it. And I just (laughs) thought that was kind of interesting. Like that's, you know, you see like... It was delightful. Dan Harmon and uh, the other sitcom guy would throw... I think Big Bang Theory would throw notes in at the end of. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This kind of reminded
0: me of that. So like, Wes Craven even invented that shit. I know big. I don't watch Big Bang Theory, but it always ends right before AEW Dynamite, so I always see that title card before AEW yeah. starts. Up. So I know exactly what you're talking about there. That's nifty. Yeah. So there's was just just a little, and I, you know, I
1: just I watch the credits when we do these movies. Usually the music, but I, uh, you know, and I caught that, and it's I just thought that was kind of fun because it's like even the credits are are meta textual.
0: That's Yeah, the meta elements of this are so much fun. Like that attention to detail. Like I said, for me, it doesn't entirely click, but it's so much fun in the effort. But what random meta element of it that I th- wish it was missing was because this movie was what, 94? Yep. It's like, man, could we have gotten this movie two years later, just two years later in 96? Because then when Heather goes into Bob Shea's office at New Line, he's going to be, you know, flipping the fuck out about the island of Dr. Moreau. Just on his phone. <laughs> you gotta give me a minute, Heather. All right, what's all this shit about Brando wanting to be a dolphin? Because that was that movie was a catastrophe. But the other Bob Shea element I'll mention real quick is in terms of bringing stuff back from the first movie, that they brought the stairs back and did them much better, the goopy stairs. Because you know yeah. it was in yep. part of the, you know, Bob Shea and Wes Craven hashing it out, be like, all right, so you gonna do this movie, Wes? Alright, yeah, I'm gonna do it. So you're gonna do it. Yes, I'm gonna do the goddamn stairs, Bob! <laughs> because that was Bob Chasing. He insisted on putting him in in the first one. Like, yep. You gotta promise me you'll do the stairs again, Wes. Yes, goddamn it. <laughs> so goopy stairs and slide agenda. So that's
1: all the points. Look, I, I fully and wholeheartedly support a slide and horror movie agenda.
0: Man, if we get to Vampire in Brooklyn and there's no slide, I'm gonna be so upset.
1: So disappointed. I don't it's funny. I, I saw that and I just have very very few memories of it. I have
0: too. Been a long time.
1: I mean, I remember enjoying it when I saw it, but yeah, no. we'll, we'll definitely have to cover that one. Maybe we can do that in the um, the recent one on Netflix. Uh,
0: oh, vampires versus the Bronx is what you versus okay. the Bronx. Yeah. yeah,
1: saw that one. That one was was fun.
0: Was, that's, that's some good points. Plenty of vampire content out there for us. But, but yeah, this is we. Covered what we loosely referred to as Elm Street Prime, which was one to six, and now we've done the other one that, you know, most people count as part of the canon. Like Nick mentioned, a lot of folks you will see a lot of Elm Street fans who call it the trilogy of one three and and new nightmare. So yeah, so now we've covered all the main ones. I'm excited to do the remake. (laughs) I bet you are. (laughs) Coming out of that Constantine review, I I think you're gonna come into this remake and it's gonna be like the scene with the the fucking coach at the end of Major League, Major League Two specifically. He's jumping on the hospital bed. I love this shit! <laughs> I want to do a podcast all about Platinum Dunes remakes. I can't get enough of this shit. I love watching Eric suffer! <laughs>
1: Look, you're the one who coined the phrase the Eat Shit and Die Not podcast much, on episode know. two or three. <laughs> you're yeah, with yeah, one. Yeah. But- I'm living by your ethos. I Hate your face, about as much as I hate your voice.
0: <laughs> I am looking forward to. I've actually already rewatched a bit of it because I rewatched the first thirty minutes or so so I could get started on the artwork for that episode and kick around some ideas or whatever. So, so yeah, I'll watch that tonight. I'm I'm looking forward to revisiting it. Um, like I ran down before, all the great guests we had on the previous Elm Streets. We didn't. It was just us for the first one and Freddy's Dead. Probably not gonna be any guests on the remake. I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) But look, I'm
1: just looking for because I feel like for me there's there's only two outcomes to this. Either we're gonna start recording, I'm gonna be grinning like one of those weirdos from the smile that you keep (laughs) turning up at you know, ballparks. Or I'm just gonna come in, go back to smoking, light up a cigarette. I've seen some shit. <laughs>
0: you know? Jake is, oh man, you're going to make me hurt so bad on this remake. You know, that's, has anyone seen Conan the Destroyer? The shitty one? Yes. Not the the one they made a couple years later. Yep. You know that one, one of the few good scenes, which is the scene where he reunites with the wizard who's played by Mako. Yes. And he just rides up to him and just says, I need you. And Mako just says, I'm yours. And that's it. That's the extent of it. <laughs> I need you. I'm yours. That's going to be me knowing we're going into this remake. I'm just going to have to zoom call Jer, Jake's brother, and say, I need you. (laughs) I'm yours.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Look, I just, this is the first time, like, I haven't seen the movie, and, you know, statistically, I'm bound to hate it. But, you know, it's the first time we're going into a film where I know ahead of time that you both dislike it. Yes.
0: We'll see. I don't think you'll hate it because it's, we sort of had a dry run of this already with The Thing. And you saw the remake of that i didn't hate i just didn't think it had any purpose because a lot of again been ages but a lot a lot of my fundamental issues with the elm street remake are similar to the quasi remake of the thing which we'll get it much more significant but we'll get into the remake equal <laughs> which is funny because the movies share a writer eric Heiser worked on both he, a writer i I really like he wrote some great comics but um secret weapons from Diamond, check that out. yeah it's I have no doubt the remake is going to be fun to revisit one way or the other, and I'm, I'm sure it's going to be a fun episode.
1: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited for all of our upcoming stuff.
0: I am too. Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, we've got a couple things to get out of the way before we get to the remake. Just a couple things that worked out timing-wise. One of which is of, me doing a movie <laughs> that I don't love. We're about to do one of my favorites. We've said for a long time that whenever criterion got around to releasing the blu-ray of kiyoshi kurosawa's cure that we would do an episode on it and it's coming out in october so our next episode after this if all goes as planned is going to be an episode on kiyoshi kurosawa's cure and then after that we have our halloween special coming up which is going to be on i won't say well we actually kind of tweeted about it but i'll just say it was referenced earlier in this episode in roundabout ways and if you
1: don't follow us on twitter here's your chance to get a little preview of what's coming up Follow us on Twitter. We'd love to see you
0: at scary stuff pod on Twitter at scary stuff on on Letterboxd at scary stuff podcast on Instagram, but yeah, follow us on socials, but yeah, it's mainly just hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. And I hope you, if you haven't listened to the previous Elm street reviews we did, and if for whatever reason, this is your first, I I would absolutely encourage you to go back and, and listen to the others. Just, you know, it's a stretch for me to, to talk about positively about something I'm involved in, but like I ran down at the top, We had fabulous guests on so many of those and the chats were so much fun with Haley, with Steve, with Erica, with Cynthia, with Hannah. So it's, yeah, I'm pretty happy with those episodes turned out, even though I'm on them. I'm pretty happy with how those episodes turned out.
1: And if you listen to or if you go to our website, Eric, you usually put the time codes in for the interview portions, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you can just if you start listening to through our website, you can just cut out all of our bullshit entirely and listen to our wonderful guests. GaryStuffPodcast.com.
0: Yeah, and if you do like what you hear, if you can leave us a review wherever your preferred pod platform is, that'd also be great. We'd really appreciate it. Or you could send money.
3: Like just send us (laughs) up offside. We'll we'll give you an
1: address. But look, we like money. If you know a sponsor, we like sponsors. We don't have a sponsor. Like I would. We. Can you imagine how good we'd be at reading ads? (laughs) Stamps.com.
0: (laughs) <laughs> funny you mention that so we we just got done doing our run of coffee with rootless coffee we, we did it for september 2022 i say again i said it at the top of the magnetic rose episode but even though our coffee blend isn't on sale anymore please go to rootless and try them i, I love their stuff try one of their other roasts but i was thinking about it i was like because i i was like maybe maybe someday rootless will sponsor us because i really want to do an, a rootless ad read as ted levine
1: which <laughs> would be incredible.
0: Because specifically, you know, rootless and coffee, it would be, be rootless. <laughs> just unintelligible and just slipping coffee in the middle. <laughs> so head on over
1: to
3: rootlesscoffee.com <laughs>
1: Well, you know, if we start doing ad reads, you gotta do them as you gotta do one as Ted Levine, you gotta do one as um Oh yeah. Uh, and in lauder yeah i this this is come on somebody has to want this to happen crickets or you know we could always just start a patreon and you know a discord and shit people give us money that way or something i don't know <laughs> look i had a bad week at my job people help us out
0: <laughs>
1: I, it's funny i just joined a patreon for another podcast that i like the you know ball podcast which is a primarily sixers podcast
0: so other folks can suffer with you
1: yes okay pretty much all of my hobbies are either either me suffering or making you two suffer that's pretty much all i do with my life but no and they they have a discord so i've been sort of semi-active on the, the discord there and then i just said you know we could try this and then i had like nightmare precog you know having a hard discord where we could just argue all of the time oh, God. With and it's just... but you know anyway i was just it's kind of interesting. You know, not anything we have in the works. You know, I'm just, you know, grubbing Maybe for money someday. again because I had bad week. But, uh...
0: Tpublic.com slash of... <laughs> Head to our website. We got a link to buy stuff
2: there. Lots I'm of fun like...
1: merch. Look, if we have a really rich listener, like, we'll fucking chill for you. You know, we'll, you, you just tell us what you... Know. We'll, look, we're spineless. I just like money. Anyway, I'm good. I'll stop begging and grubbing for money now.
2: I can hear me now. I'll be like, hi, I'm here talking for John Johnson. And goddamn is his life glorious. And now I'm going to rant about how much I love this son of a bitch because he paid me a lot of money to do it.
0: <laughs> We're reviewing a movie called Wes Craven's New Nightmare. We'll just put the sponsor at the top. It'll be Squarespace's Scary Stuff Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do it, Squarespace. It's so alliterative.
1: <laughs> it is. It's nice. It's like Laurie Lamaris, man. Sorry, I was thinking of all the L's in Superman today.
0: I'm gonna say, were you reading Frank Miller's year one? Oh god.
1: No. Just I saw some tweet that triggered it. And I was thinking, yeah yeah, Lana Lang, Laurie Lamares, you know, just the whole list. <laughs> so anyway, something about Wes Craven, something New Nightmare. It, yeah. Anyway, it was a good movie. I liked it. Yeah.
0: We got a good movie coming up. We got Kyoshi Kurosawa's Cure coming up in a week or so after this. But in the meantime, again, always say it but thank you so so much for listening. We really appreciate the support. We really do. Very
2: much so. Not
1: as much as we'd appreciate if there was money involved. Oh, my God. (laughs) I don't even know why I got on this tangent tonight, man. (laughs) Sports are bad. That's all I got.
0: On that note, this is Eric, the non-sports fan,
2: signing off, saying thanks again for listening. This is Nick Leamy saying, just because it's a love story doesn't mean he can't have a decapitation or two. This is Jacob saying, don't raise your kids to be sports fans. (laughs) Good night. Good night, everybody.
3: bags.